All right, welcome. Lesson three, and today we're going to talk about the divine image. So in, lesson, in the second lesson, we spoke about the fact that the gift of monotheism, and uh, primarily we, we spoke about the gift of hope, you know, because when you know that it's the, the world and creation was not just, you know, a bunch of fights between the gods that frankly did not care about humanity, but it's a benevolent God that, that has a purpose for the world. So you know that A, you have purpose, and B, you have hope because God is in charge and He's, he's in control. Today we're going to focus more about the human being. So, so let's go back into uh, the text of Genesis, you know, talk about how God created mankind, and we're going to learn what makes us human, right? So if you look at exercise 3.1, what is it that makes us human? Try, try to think for, you know, 15 seconds just to start your, uh, your thinking. To distinguish us from animals, is that what you're asking? In general, what, what makes what makes you human? I love I gotta say this joke. So one day a group of scientists got together and they decided that um, that's it, you know, we have, we've had enough of God, we can take care of ourselves. So they find a community and one scientist finally goes to God and says, God, you know, we really appreciate your uh, input until now, but, you know, nowadays we can clone things, we can really, you know, we, we've, we've gone pretty far and, uh, you know, we appreciate all you've done, but now, you know, you, know, you, can, uh, you can leave. So he said, oh, okay. I uh, I don't uh, I don't disagree, but let's just you know for let's just have a man-making contest just you know to see how you guys would would do. So God, uh, so the scientist says, okay, no problem. So, um, uh, he, but God says, you know, I want you to do it the way I did it, you know, in the olden days, how I created Adam. So the scientist says, okay, no problem. He you know goes on the floor, picks up some dirt, and God says, no, 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 no. I want you to get some dirt from your, you know. I want you to get some, some of your dirt. You get it? <laughs> In other words, we have no, yeah. God created everything and we, we can't. All right, sorry. So let's, let's begin with text number one. God said... Let us make man in our image. In wait, 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 wait. Who is us? Okay, so that's a good question. Who is us? So us is either you can say the royal we. Okay. That is the question. Or. <laughs> so no, no, there's, there's commentaries. I'm sure all the cultures have their, their explanations. Judaism says e, it's either royal we, you know, out yeah. of respect. Or, um, so to speak, God was contemplating with the angels, you know, should we do 
man? Should we create man? So that's one explanation. So they were angels before everything. Not, not in, well, man was created the sixth day. So this doesn't mean the way it was the said. angels created. So there's, there is also a lot of discussions. Some say they were created the third day. Oh. Some say it was created, they were created the fifth day because the animals were created. So the angels are sort of, sort of, you know, they have the angels that looked like uh, bulls, bulls, meaning the angels are, are, um, are regarded as spiritual animals because we're going to learn now, they have no free choice. Okay. Okay, so probably the easiest answer is the royal we. Okay. All right, so let us make man in our image, in our likeness. They shall rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the animals and all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over all the beasts that tread upon the earth. So the two elements that we have to focus on is A, that we are created, created in the divine image and B, our mission is to rule over the world, subduing the earth. Okay? So let's, let's start with the divine image. On a simple level, divine image means we have some, every human, humankind has something godly. That's the first implication. Now, let's look at text number two. What does it mean that we have this divine image? Text number two. You want me to read it? Yeah. In our image, this refers to humanity's abstract intelligence. In our likeness, this refers to the realm of action. It is saying that the human being acting with self-awareness and consciousness somewhat resembles the behavior of the angels. However, the angels' actions are not voluntary in this respect. The human being does not resemble them. Rather, in this respect, the human being somewhat resembles God who acts with free choice. So the first two qualities the intelligence and um, self-consciousness, you could say that, you know, while humans have it on a much more refined, higher level, also animals have a certain yeah. you know, intelligence Absolutely. and self-consciousness. But definitely we can say that the humans is, you know, a step higher. But what, and, and honestly, and this is the key point, angels also have are, according to Jewish tradition, they're completely self-conscious. They're intelligent beings. But here is the key. That we are... The free choice. Exactly. The free choice is the element that, we, that makes human beings completely unique. Even more than extraterrestrial beings. Only human beings, more than animals, more than angels, only human beings have free choice. Angels are basically spiritual robots. Which is funny because it's actually a, a song concept that I have is, you know, everybody says, oh, I wish I was an angel. But the Tanya says that angels, it's like, it's boring. You know, you never, you never really grow. You never, you're never independent, so to speak. 
human beings have this incredible element. And honestly, because of free choice, so to speak, we are godlike. But this is key, is to say we have the likeness of God. God, of course, A, is in control of nature. Now, we have free choice, but we, we are bound by the laws of nature. And also, unfortunately, because we have free choice, we can abuse it, you know, for, for the negative. And, um, but ultimately, it is, this is what it means that we have a divine image. Intelligence, self-consciousness, self-awareness, and free choice. And so the central message of the biblical narrative is that the human being is a created entity that resembles the creator. Right, so let's maybe look at the divine image, so doing the earth. So we have superior intelligence, self-consciousness, and free choice. All right, so, so we spoke about the divine image. Now let's talk about the second element, which is our mission. Our mission is to subdue the earth. And subdue is the literal word, subdue, to control. Okay, so you no, don't look at it in the, in the negative sense. It means we uniquely, it's a human trait that we can manipulate. I'm not talking about the negative. Of course, because we have free choice, very often we, we have abused that power. But only human beings have the power to really develop earth, you know, develop tools and and understand abstract things and cre have created, I mean, the world that we live in now is an incredible achievement. I mean, think about, okay, in Torah's terms, in 5,000 years, we've went from completely primitive, you know, getting the fire to where we are right now. It's an incredible, incredible uh, achievement. And this, this was the point. The point God said, I want you to subdue the earth, rule over the fish, which means use everything that you can to advance civilization. That's, that's your purpose. Now, of course, it does not mean in, in any shape or form that you can uh, harm anything in the world, you know, animals and anything, but that's a different conversation. Okay, so let's, let's go text number three. Donovan, take yes. it away. God gave humans power and dominion over the earth. They can do as they wish with the animals and the creatures that move along the ground. They can build, uproot, mine copper from the hills, etc. This is all included in the word of in the words of the verse all over all of the earth. Right. Utilize the world and Cultivate the world for human settlement and civilization. But what is the ultimate? The ultimate is not just to advance civilization, but to bring, as you see in text number four, the blessing and divine command, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, that God gave after the creation of humanity, is a general command that expresses the role and purpose of the creation of humankind. Humans were created to multiply, fill and settle the earth and subdue it. 
making it into a dwelling place for God. So what does it mean, subdue earth? It means to sanctify and make this world a godly, holy place. So to speak, where God will feel at home. And, and again, this means don't you know, limit God to the place of worship. Don't limit God to synagogue when you eat kosher. Bring God in, in, into literally every place. And, and think about it this way. Wherever you find yourself, the, the family that you, that you have, the, wherever you've lived in your life, the qualities, the challenges that you have, all these form the picture of, that God gave you that uniquely, you know, unique for you. And this is what God is saying, hey, I want you to bring me in those places because no one else can. This is your unique mission. And that's why he gave us divine, a divine image. Take that divine image and, in other words, activate that divine image in wherever you find yourself. And what does it mean be fruitful? Because the underlying real, uh, truth is that every human being reflects godliness, which means we all are a representation of God. So just our presence in the world makes it a more godly place. Therefore, be fruitful means, you know, literally have children. Why? Because just the presence of another human being, because every human being is, it has a divine image, that means now there's more of the divine in the world. So that's why, for example, the, the prayer of Kaddish, right? We, we, we pray it when, you know, for the deceased. And basically the prayer is saying that we, you know, this soul has made, made God's name bigger. Now you might think to yourself, I mean, how do you know what the man did? Maybe he didn't do anything, you know, so godly in his life. But the truth is that just your presence in this physical world, that alone is already a, a, a manifestation of God's presence. And that's one of the reasons that you have to be fruitful, you know, bring more humans because every human is bringing God's presence in the world. So we have 15 million Jews and 8 billion people. But divine image is in every human being. What? But the, but the other people are not bringing God into the world in the same way the Jews are. They're doing it in their own way. Okay. Way. Okay, but again, divine image... But to make it a place... In other words, I'm saying that if, it's, if our job is to make it a dwelling place for God, He didn't give us a lot of folk to do it with. But we're, we're not, that's the point. We're not meant to do it just for ourselves. We're meant to get everyone on board. And, and again, don't look at right. the, the, the people that are, are you know, <laughs> the people that don't want to buy it is, is their problem. In other words, anti-Semitism is... We're not responsible is a, for that. The people that are, you know, anti-Semites because they are, you know, you can read why they are. You know, you can, you can, you know, give 10 reasons for why they hate Jews. But those people, you definitely have no... So, so even if, let, let those people go. But the people that are 
have a different Hindus, Buddhists, who may not be anti-Semites, okay. but who just have a different conception of what so, God is. So you can definitely... Uh, what should we do with them? Talk with them. Talk, you know, understand, try... So definitely this class, you're going to see how significant a divine image is in both, in both, the, in both aspects. In the negative, that is not in the negative, in the sense, what it means you shouldn't do and what it means you should do. In other words, because you have the divine image, you shouldn't do this. Because you have the divine image, you should do this, you know, in both respects. And I think this is something that everyone can, so can benefit from. Should we proselytize? Should we go out and try to get converts? No, it's not. The, 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 this, these concepts are universal. You ever heard of the seven Noahide laws? Yeah. We'll talk about it. Not everybody would buy into. You don't. The, the, you mean, have some to. Some of those are, are. Some of those are universal. Some of them are not. In what sense? Uh, I'm trying to think of all of them now. They have. They, everybody's obsessed with uh, sexual de deviation here, and how that's defined. That's it. What the, 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 the adultery? No, not adultery. There's something else in there. There's you know. Sexual depravity is one of them, isn't it? No. No? No. I looked at the Noahide laws again. There's seven. There were seven. And one, murder, one. murder I, can, I can deal with. The courts and justice okay. I can deal with. Um, um, idolatry, which means believing one God. Okay, that's... Okay, you know... Not everybody's so, buying that, but okay. Okay, listen, you know, you have to at least sell it. So we're supposed to proselytize that. It's not pro okay. Proselytize sound bad, but these—it's not proselytizing. This is for everyone. It's not like. But we're, we're telling them that our God is telling you, who doesn't necessarily believe in this God, that this is the things you're supposed to do. More than you're supposed to is, okay. You you can put it that way. That's pretty or, tough. Or when you can say. We're fifteen million out of eight billion. Well, we know, I think, we know I think we're pretty loud. <laughs> we know the truth. You don't. So here are the seven things you guys need to do. Not, I'm not saying I'm not saying you know the truth or you don't. The thing, the point of these seven the universal, truth, right? the, the seven universal laws are not necessarily contradictions to the main religions. Not at all. We I all. Think I, when you go to somebody and say, "This is what our God said you ought to do," even though you don't believe in Him. That's a tough sell. Okay, so you have to you have to know how to sell it. <laughs> Definitely, you have to know how to sell it. <laughs> oh, Jews have done a ter pretty terrible job with mm. that so far. The, you know what it is? The Jews have not have never haven't really sold. No, sold. not at all. You know why? We we don't even want to. We don't care. No, we we haven't sold because we didn't have the ch the, the chance. We didn't have the chance. Yes. We've been here for 5,000 well, years. Well, for, for 4,000 years we've been, you know, oppressed and, 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 and killed and tortured. Right. I don't think when you're, you know, being tortured, hard. you can it's say, hard. hey, I want to sell you something. So, now, that's why the Rebbe, in the last 40 years, has been pushing the seven Noahide laws because he said, now it's the perfect time. Now we're in a time of overall general peace that we can talk to people i've talked to many people about it okay. and and you know how many italians told me adultery no sorry you know how many italians told me that 
They said they accept everything other than adultery. What do you mean that they're doing it? That they, they, they don't want to, they, they, you know, they it's have... It's okay for them. So yeah. not, not the more... Another man's wife, no issue. No issue. Yeah, you know Italians. So the, the, I'm not going to say, oh, Italians. what am I going to say? Right. Okay, what am I, what am I going to say? Oh, no, you're saying, no. I'm just going to say, okay, fine, listen. Try to focus on the other ones and, uh, you know, God, God shall help you. <laughs> Anyways, let's continue. Okay. So because we are all godly, we have the power, because of our divine image, we have the power to transform the physical world by living in it and using it. This is the key. Using it according to God's instructions given to us. You understand? God gave us instructions how to live all of our lives, not just the, the, the religious one. And we need to develop the world for the benefit of, of civilization and then, of course, the step, the next step is to make it, in order to make it godly. So, um, subduing so the earth means settle, cultivate, improve, and ultimately create a dwelling place for God. Now, let's look, as we, we have done in the previous two lessons, let's look at how we have, uh, how was this concept viewed how is this viewed in the, in the ancient world? And of course, it was very, very different. Now, of course, nowadays we all believe in, human, in the sanctity of human life. We all respect human life. And we all understand that murder is, you know, prohibited and it's terrible. I say murder because killing is very different. And we're going to talk about it. But... But it wasn't always like that. In ancient times, um, life was not regarded as such. And definitely, meaning life, the avoid, avoiding murder in those, in those days, it was for utility. You know, you want a society to, to grow or to, just to live, you don't want people killing each other. But because it was all about, you know, what you, you need to utilize just to have a functioning society, there was no concern over the weak and, the, you know, the children. Because they, there was no, absolutely no, it was just a burden. That's why in those times they did not respect uh, that, that part of, of, of human life. And... Um, now, the subject of, of, of the absolute morality is going to be a topic in lesson four and lesson six, so we're not going to talk about it today. Right now, we want to talk about how they regarded human life. First thing we can say, it's called something called infanticide. No. Inf yeah, infanticide. Infanticide, which means very famous, you know, if you watch the movie Sparta, the 300. If a baby was uh, deformed or weak, they would, uh, how do they call it? They call it the exposure. They would abandon it or, or out, outright kill it. And parents had many reasons. If they were poor, they didn't have financial means. If they were rich, they wanted you know, their children to have more to, to uh, less to, to divide. So th that's, that's how it was. Look, let's look at 
Text number five, disregard for human life, infanticide, and oh, let's look at first at, uh, at text number five. Infanticide of both legitimate and illegitimate children was a regular practice of antiquity. Children were thrown into rivers, flung into dung heaps and cess trenches, potted in jars to starve to death and exposed on every hill and roadside, a prey for birds, food for wild beasts to rent. To begin with, any child that was not perfect in shape and size or cried too much or too little, or was otherwise than is, is described in the gynecological writings on how to recognize the newborn that is worth rearing, was generally killed. Beyond this, the firstborn was usually allowed to live, especially if it was a boy. Girls, of course, were valued little with the instructions of Hilarion to his wife Alice, and typical of the open way these things were discussed. If, if as may well happen, you give birth to a child, if it is a boy, let it live. If, if it is a girl, expose it. The killing of legitimate children, even by wealthy parents, was so common that Polybius blamed it for the depopulation of Greece. In our own time, the whole of Greece has been subject to a low birth rate and a general decrease in the population, owing to which cities have become deserted and the land has ceased to yield fruit, although there have never, neither been continuous wars nor epidemics, as men had fallen into such a state of pretentiousness, avarice, and indolence that they did not wish to marry, or if they married, to rear children born to them, or as a rule, but one or two of them. Until the fourth century CE, neither law nor public opinion found infanticide wrong in either Greece or Rome, and the great philosophers agreed. So Rome, in, actually in, in the Roman Republic, in the constitution of the Roman Republic, it said a father shall have the right of life and death over his son. And, you know, honestly, it's not that they had a, a better example from their gods. <laughs> their gods themselves, you know, were involved in infanticide. And this was not limited to Western, no, the, the, the Western civilizations, but also India, China, Japan was also widespread. And another example is the gladiators. You want to look, look at text number six? Yep. I read it. Yeah. The or circus games consisted of spectacles of very different types. The most usual were the ludi gladiatori or the gladiators, in which well-trained gladiators fought in various ways, each trying to wound or kill his opponent. Gladiators were usually prisoners of war and were trained in barracks run on military lines. The public execution of criminals falls into part of this, um, the circenses or the circus when they were thrown at bestias to the beasts or put to death in some equally cruel way as the condemned man had been tortured to death. There seemed to be no reason for cheating the public who could never have enough bloodshed of such a spectacle. The Romans watched gladiatorial shows, almost drunk with the sight of so much bloodshed, kill him, they shouted, beat him, burn him. Why does he meet the sword so timidly? Why didn't he fight more bravely? Why does he die so unwillingly? In the intervals, impatient voices could be heard. Now let's have some throats to cut and keep the action going. So as, we, as you know, most gladiators, they were 
forced to compete, they were poor, they were prisoners of war, or just outright people, poor people that just wanted fame. And, um, you know, the reason they, they, I mean, I've been to the Colosseum, the, the explanations given, how is it possible that, you know, people were so, why would rich people sponsor these, these games? And the answer was, because it was politically, it was a way to get all these disoccupied people, you know, entertained. So then they can, you know, they run the country the way they wanted. But in general, these cultures celebrated war and violence. And that's not to, uh, that's not to, um, another thing was human sacrifices. So not only kids were not, you know, infanticide, kids were not, uh, their lives were not very meaningful, but also gladiators and human sacrifice. So the question really is, why was it like that? Why did the ancient people act in such a way that right now we look at it, it seems unfathomable. Like how is it possible that they disregarded human life and not only in Rome, they were so bloodthirsty. How is it possible? And the answer is that human life had no inherent value. It was all a social construct, kind of a social agreement. And it was valid, it was dependent on if it served a social benefit. So if you were unproductive, weak, deformed, uh, old, whatever it is, so then it's not just they, they said, well, you know, you, know, you, 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 wanna, you should find yourself something. They would outright kill them because they, they thought this was the right thing to do for society. And, of course, um, the Torah has a very different outlook on that. And that is that, also, sorry, before I, I go to the Torah, humanity looked at, at humans just as a better animal. We're just animals, we're more equipped, you know, we have more, more abilities, but that's all we are. But the Torah came and said, no. Humans are not just a better animal. Humans are unique and they have this divine image. And they're here to advance civilization and to bring God into this world. So the result is that who decides the value of human life? Not society. The one who decides the value of human life is God. And because God invests a divine image into every human being, therefore that value can, is unchangeable, is unmoved by how much he helps society. And I want to I say, add this, it's not in the book, but it's something I'm very passionate now, especially because I work with you know, uh, retirement communities, seniors. And unfortunately, this, I'm not going to say this, this, you know, thinking, but in, in some way or another, this is still a challenge in our, in our day and age. Old people are, are regarded as a, a burden because if you look at human life as how productive you are, 
most people are going to say, well, you have to respect old people because, you know, we have to thank them for what they did for us. But, be, but ultimately they say they're a burden. That's what they are. But, and that's what the, the idea of retirement it basically means, okay, that's it. You're not productive anymore. Your body is not as good as it used to be. So basically, you know, find what to do with your time until you die, pretty much. But because life is not measured by how productive you are and how many people you can serve, it's about your divine image. So I, I tell this old people all the time. Your value is not measured by how much you can do now because clearly God created the system that our bodies you know get weaker and weaker you can do less and less but the soul is always there and it's as fresh as ever and therefore you know I feel this is a, a, a big you know something a message that we need to really share with the world that especially for the, the you know the older people the seniors in our community, is that their value is not defined by society, by, you know, the, their human right. It's by their divine image. And therefore, as long as you're alive, you have a mission. It's, that's why it's so unique, that outlook. And that's why Torah prohibits murder, because you cannot take away someone else's divine image. In other words, so now we're going to see now, really... But there are many parts of the Torah where people should be stoned, people should be killed for this. Very we good. have revenge, we... Okay, people very People did bad things, and we... we, we, we Jacob's, what, his, uh, his daughter, his, uh, who was the lady that was raped? Yes, his and daughter. And they go with the Midian, they go in and kill yeah. all the Midianites, yeah. and, and not only do they go in, but they, they take all their stuff. Yeah. So it is that we have lots of, the Torah is a bloody document. Yes. There's much bloodshed in there. Well, because first of all, the Torah is not... We're going after Amalek because we didn't like that they went after the weak and Well, Sinai. no, no. There is a lot more to it than just, you know, the, the, the literal translation. But first of all, the Torah is, is bloody because the Torah is very honest. The Torah is not trying to yeah, but God look is the one who's saying, kill, you get killed for this, you get killed for this, you get killed for this. Exactly, because... Anybody that does this because, is no good. Again, again, you have to look at it from the point of the divine image. Why are we here? Meaning, when you say your value is not measured by society, but it's measured by divine image, you can think, oh, awesome, I have a divine image, I always have value no matter what I do, Therefore, I'm just going to do whatever I want, right? Which in, in one way, you can look at it, it's true. It truly, it doesn't matter. Whatever you do, you can never take away that divine image that you have, that God invests in you. Now, going based on that divine image uh, perspective, divine image also means you have a responsibility. You have a, you have, it's a privilege, it's a responsibility, and therefore, all those people... Uh, like you mentioned, Amalek, and and uh, you know, they Sudan, took, Gamora, I mean, Sudan, they, all these people, all kinds of sinners. They, in a very simple way, they kind of you know ended their divine image uh, purpose. They abused their divine image, and, and God said, "Okay to kill." 
It's not okay to kill him. We it, should kill okay? him. God said they don't deserve the divine image anymore. They, in other words, you have to look, every human being is God's representation. God said, if you're doing a really bad job of representing me, then I'm sorry, I gave you life, I gave you the divine image, you abused it to the extent that I can't take it anymore. I'm sorry, and it's a... Uh, Anything that did not worship God was to be killed. What? Anything, think about it, anything that did not worship God was killed. No, it's not true. Not at all. God had had a lot of, there's many, many stories of God, you know, warning these people and then they repented. So nothing, you know, they they were restored. The, the, you know, we're getting into, you know, big conversation. Certain people, I'm going to see now that, what you know, the problem of murder, and then we're going to see the difference of killing so rather than murder. You know. We no, we don't have. Uh, no, we have minions Sunday morning. Nice. Well, welcome, welcome to Carlsbad. Good night. Good night. So. Are you referring to Nineveh? Nineveh is a good example, but in general, God, if God, you know, you always have to remember that a lot of the things that you that you're. A lot of it is Western thinking. A lot of it is Western thinking, and therefore, a lot of what is Western thinking. The the way you say, oh, why is why is it right that Jacob, you know, Jacob's sons, you know, went and killed the whole entire city? There's a lot of. Well, first, one woman was raped, and in responsible. Well, it was that, her sister. We annihilate everybody in the all the in men that in the city. Community. Okay, so there, there is a specific it's reason. It's not an eye for an eye anymore. It's not. It, first of all, they were reprimanded for it. Jacob screamed at them. He said, now, now, you know, and everybody. He lied to them and said, sure, well, you can marry. We, we'll marry you. No problem. Just get circumcised. Right. That was, the, that was their, they, they deceased, the, the, so, deceived them. Yes, they deceived them. So, yeah. was so, it yeah. very nice? So you have to, there is a, a bigger picture that you have to see what was there, A, what was Levi and, and Simon's mistake, and why did all those people deserve death? Okay, see, we make a big point about these other cultures that they don't care about life, and all I'm saying is that we also so are you, not terrific you, with every life. So you have to we understand. Have many examples where we don't, something is prohibited, that's it. You're done. But what I'm saying is, the reason is because it's based on the divine image. If a person abuses the divine image to an extent, then he doesn't deserve to... He's not fulfilling his responsibility, and he's not representing God in the way he wants it. In other words, I can say a very good example. I mean, my, my sister was just telling me she runs a playgroup, and she, she had a great assistant... And unfortunately, she had a, a terrible story. She lost a, a child. So she hired another assistant. And this assistant was terrible. After a few days, she said, I'm sorry, but 
don't come back. You might think, you know, in, in other words, you can look at it the same way. God, so to speak, hires us. He gives us, invests a divine image in us. You abuse it or you, you're not showing God you're fit for it. Goodbye. Now, there is a big difference between those days and our day and age. In other words, and this is also a topic that Tanya talks about, is, for example, all the mitzvahs of the Torah, for example, it says in the Torah, hey, if you do this, then you're going to be cut off, right? What does it mean cut off? The Talmud explains that the person would die before the age of 60 or 50. Asks the Tanya, says, what do you mean? <laughs> there is, I know many, many people that have sinned more than enough, and they live till 120, you know, 100 years old. How do you explain that? The answer is, nowadays, we're not spiritually, we're not at, at that refined level, that, that disattachment. In other words, we're so, so to speak, coarse, that that disattachment can't even happen, and doesn't, it doesn't come into the physical world anymore. So truly, nowadays, people don't die before that cut off thing doesn't happen anymore because we're on such low level of, of coarseness that we don't, in other words, that you have to be refined to get cut off. Wow. Nowadays, we're, we're not there. There's, there's, there's so much contradiction here. The Rebbe says, but now we're so close to the Messiah because... We're almost but, there, but, but that, now we're that's, saying we're so coarse but the, that we don't even enforce the laws. The, all they're, they're exactly, they're exactly. In other words, the greatest darkness. I mean, I can look. The greatest at, darkness brings the Messiah. Brings the greatest light. It's they're both in exactly this. The, they're two sides of the same coin. I can look at the world and see wow, the advancement, technology. You know, how, how in, in nowadays, you know, you can see how the whole world is together. And I can be with this, a person, you know, six hours away at this, you know, incredible advances. And at the same time, I can say there's so much corruption still. There is. So much corruption, violence, rape, and, and, and ter- so all these things. So this is what's going to break the, the Messiah. So, again, the, the greatest darkness precedes the greatest light. So, so because... Because we're so, so like the lowest of the lowest. Then we should get even lower. Then what we should do is to nope. be as horrible as we can be. Okay, so you're getting will back. certainly bring the Messiah. No, no. You have to be, you have to be smart about it in, in the sense. Remember, we, we spoke about this. If everything God does, uh, going back to that conversation. If everything God does, then I should just do be more miserable. Exactly. Do more stuff. Because anyways, everything is good. Yes. So we explained in that context, we said, it's like the good things that we can appreciate is the God giving us the candy. We can appreciate candy. We don't appreciate the college fund, right? Kids, they like candy. They don't like something, $5,000 in your college fund. I don't care. They want the candy now, right? So we have to ask God for what we can appreciate. In other words, the candy. Let's ask God for only revealed good. That's what the rabbis was saying. Now, if you want to look at it, if you look at all the corruption and all the bad stuff that's happening and the level of immorality that's rampant nowadays, 
and truly, spiritually, we're much lower than, than 100 years ago, than 200 years ago, than 500 years ago. Much lower level spiritually. But, but, you have to look at it like we're, we're, we're famous uh, concept that we're like midgets in, 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 the, in the shoulders of giants. Yes, the giants are the ones that did most of the work, blah, blah, blah. But we are the ones that actually are going to go over the wall. We're the midgets, but we're in, in, on the shoulders of giants. So yes, we're not as spiritually... Uh, there's many, many you know, different things I can tell you also. Another, another explanation is bad that, that happens. Either you can pay for it you know, by repenting or you uh, pay for it you know, with suffering or whatever. So evil, you can, you can take it away. But good remains forever. Good is eternal. Nothing can take away something good you, you've done. Evil, you can either pay for it or repent and get rid of it. So in other words, even though we're not so spiritually spiritual giants, or we can say we're spiritual midgets, but because we have all the good that's been, uh, been accumulated for 5,000 years, all the bad that they've done is not there anymore. They've paid for it or they repented. So all, we have an incredible potential. So you see the dichotomy? There is, on one hand, we're spiritually low, we are spiritually low, much lower than it used to be, but, be, but we are at the, at the last. So imagine, there's the giants before us, we are the midgets, but we are the midgets that are actually going to do it. You understand? The giants must be very unhappy wherever they are now no, no. that this has occurred. No, in, no. <laughs> in fact, Moses, it says that Moses, when he looked at our generation, the generation you know, that's, that's Moshiach generation, he said, I'm, I'm humbled. People that in that spiritual, you know, in that spiritual, uh, how do you say, famine, you know, like people that are, are, are not so spiritually, you know, alive, and yet they go to shul, and yet they do these holy things, he said, it's incredible. You understand? Okay, I won't belabor. Okay. I just... So, okay. That's another thing to add to our conversations. <laughs> okay. So now, uh, let's look at text number seven. Okay. Want me to read? No, I'll read. Okay. For, your, for your lifeblood, so now let's really understand what about murder and killing. What is the difference, and what what makes Torah against murder? Okay, in society and Torah, humanity is unexceptional. Human life has no inherent value. Utilitarian prohibition of murder. Meaning, humanity is just a, a better animal. A Torah says humanity is unique and divine. Human life is inherently valuable, and absolute prohibition of murder. Okay, let's go. So for your lifeblood, I will demand an accounting. From the hand of each human being, from the hand of each man, for that of his brother, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood shall have his blood shed by man, for God made the human in his image. You might seem all these 
very repetitious, but you're going to see, you're going to see now how all these rep seemingly repetitious statements are very, very important. So let's, um, so let look at the commandment one and six. Okay, so look, look over here, look at the one and six, okay? So there is a, um, a, a commentary that explains that it's not just, you know, it happened by coincidence that, you know, the, these five are in this order. And, and they say, they, they bring a, a connection between the lines. So they say that I am your God is, in, is connected to do not murder. Okay, you get it? There's five on one side, and then from six to ten on the other side, they have, okay, so I'll, I'll go back like that. You see? There's five, and then the six to ten. So the commentary says that two and seven have a connection, three and eight have a connection, five and ten, and one and six. So one and six is, one is I am your God, and six is do not murder. So let's look at text number eight. He's going to explain what is the connection between I am your God and do not murder. I am your God is written on one tablet, and the corresponding line on the second tablet is do not murder. The Torah thereby teaches us that one who spills human blood is considered to have reduced the divine king's image. This is analogous to a human king who gained rule over a country. Statues of his image were erected, coins were minted with his image. Sometime later, the people toppled the statues of the king and abolished this, this currency. By doing this, they reduced the image of the king. Similarly, any person who spills human blood is considered by the Torah to have reduced the divine king's image. As the verse states, whoever sheds human blood shall have his blood shed by man, for God made the human in his image. So, in other words, murdering a person is an offense to the divine image that God invested in them. And this is the underlying, the bottom line. No life can be considered less valuable and no disability or, or uh, you know, circumstance of poverty can override this value because this has nothing to do with a person's utility and not even his or her ability to execute the divine mission of sanctifying the world. Our very presence in this world is a reflection of God. So they say over here in, in a note that your question about, you know, Amalek and Noah's destruction of the entire world, that was all, not every, every case is unique, of course. Um, it was carried out by God, the source of human life and, and its value. And the purpose was to save the world from destruction and allow for proper, um, you know, to start again, so to speak. That, that Mambu was in order to start again, from basically from zero. So I know you know you don't have to buy the complete, you know. Oh, because God decided, then it's fine. But in other words, and this is the underlying difference between n not only the ancient 
you know, uh, view of, on, on human life, on purpose, on hope. But nowadays, it's also all the values that we, 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 that we cherish nowadays are all based on society, human rights. So they're not, they're limited, in, they're, they're confined in that because human, humans are finite, therefore it's always going to be limited. But once it's, it, is, it is based on God, purpose is not based on because I feel that I have purpose. Purpose is because God is investing life into you. That means you have purpose no matter what. And now we're, gonna, we're explaining it in the human, human divine image. We're saying you have purpose or your life has value not because you know, you're, you're, uh, you're, so you serve and, and you, know, you can exercise your responsibility. Even if you can't exercise your responsibility, your life is a presence of God. And, and this is the contrast. On one hand, you have people that can't, you know, people, special needs, that they can't do anything. They can't exercise their responsibility. And on the other hand, you have a person that has a lot of potential, but then he abuses his potential. And God says, this person should be put to death, and this person shouldn't. And now we're going to see really about killing also. Because... I don't think all these people, um, actually, I'm not, I'm not sure what I'm saying is right. I'm saying that all these people, that, like the Amalekites and, uh, and the Noahs, no, the, the, the flood, I don't know if the Torah says that they were murdered. It would be a very big difference if the Torah says they were murdered or they were killed. They were, they were killed. Okay, so that's a very important thing. We're going to talk about it now. Because that's a very big problem in the translation of King James. We're going to talk about it now. So, in other words, destroying life is destroying a world. And it's interesting that, what's his name? Philo? Philo? The, the Greek mm -hmm. philosopher? Mm -hmm. Philo? Mm -hmm. He was the first one to condemn infanticide. And it's funny because he was a Hellenist Jew. So he was the first Greek philosopher to publicly talk against infanticide. And he based it on the Jewish, he said, uh, Jewish law forbids infanticide. Um, another one that um, noted this, this peculiarity, peculiarity, whatever, about the Jews was... Um, Tacitus, Tacitus, another Roman historian. So he said, um, human, divine image, murder, it's an offense to divine image. Um, all right. So when, when we kill Palestinians, and I'm, I'm all for it, don't misunderstand me, this is okay? Which Palestinians? The ones who we, we, they sent bombs to Israel. We sent missiles there and killed people. Who do we kill? Terrorists. That, that's a, terrorists. But some so of them are innocent as well because that's well, the way they operate. Okay. They hide behind children and women. Well, and, we try all we can 
to take care of, of, of the terrorists. That's okay. <laughs> if they don't have a godly spark. I'm not the in terrorists, favor of them. Don't, so, don't, no, no, no. don't misunderstand me. Exactly. That's a perfect okay example. Doing it. They deserve, they deserve, or they don't deserve to live. 100%. 100%. They, they, they are <laughs> a complete well, opposite. We're making the decision, not God. We're not, deciding, not, not. And we decide that every every time a Jew is killed, we kill ten of them. No, we, we do ten to one if we can. When? It, all the time. N if a terrorist not shows a, up and does, we we blow up his house. We do his family. We do as much as not, we can. That's not true. I'm sorry. Israel. Okay. First of all, it, not everything Israel does is based on the Torah. Okay. Of first of all. Not. But Israel is the most. They never kill civilians. Unless they have to take care of a terrorist and the terrorist is surrounding himself with, with children. And then the world says, oh, the Israel is killing civilians. But they don't say that they hide in, in, they hide in missiles. No, I'm not they shoot, them. They shoot missiles, missiles from the schools. They do? My point Horrible. is, Jew, Israel never does one for ten. That's a, that's a, that's a, I don't know, okay, I don't want to get political. Okay. But that's a misconception, definitely. I lived in Israel for five years. Israel it will never do that 10 for 1. Never. If it's civilians, if it's 10 terrorists, of course. Because the terrorists, they are abusing, and they're a polar opposite of everything divine image is about. I'm in favor of killing them. Don't misunderstand me. So that's my point. I'm just raising the point that oh, do they not have a divine spark as well? Or they, they gave it up by... So, oh, you know what? What you're asking is, you have to understand... When, that's, that's exactly what we're going to talk about now. Okay. They Are we... The spark, it, but that spark is, is, is not aimed at the Lord. They have twisted it and it's aimed at other Well, powers. they believe it's based on okay, but, their, their God. But they in, in, uh, they're doing it in Allah's name, not in Okay, so God's first of all, again, as I said, you should read uh, John, uh, Dr. Jonathan Sachs' book on, you know, not in God's... Uh, name uh, confronting religious violence but they're they're uh, they can believe whatever they want but ultimately they're everything they stand for is a disgrace for God's name it's everything you know as he says in, in the book was well they say they kill in the name of the God of life they do they hate they in the that. name of God of love yeah. So, I mean, read the book to give you why they do that. It's, he calls it altruistic evil. Altruistic evil. evil. Yeah, you should definitely read his book. Very, it's very interesting. Okay. So, that's exactly the next point is, okay, you're saying Torah is against absolute murder. Torah is absolutely against murder. Does that mean Torah is, you know, pacifist and completely, you know, never kill for no reason? No. Torah is not... Is not absolutely because there's a very big difference between murder and killing. Okay, so let's let's the next. That is the next. Okay, so you were text number nine. They provide for the increase of their numbers. It is a he was of course anti-Semite. He was saying that the Jews, the reason that they don't believe in infanticide and they respect human life is because they're trying to populate the world. You know, they provide for the increase of their numbers. It is a crime among them to kill any newly born infant. Hence, a passion for propagating the race and a contempt for death. 
So murder is forbidden because it reduces the divine image in the world. Okay? Divine image. All right. So this is very, very important. And especially for you, Donovan, because this is a very big misconception. So question for discussion. Can killing ever be justified? If yes, when? So very important definition of murder is lotirzach in the in the Ten Commandments it says lotirzach do not murder and in the famous King James translation version he said do not kill but kill is very different kill in the in the Hebrew context is killing just like you know self defense um, is uh, in other words killing is a description of an action murder in, in the Hebrew uh, version is a condemnatory definition of it the Torah does not forbid a justified killing it forbids the unwarranted murder so for example Torah allows judicial execution if um, right, so let's look at the words of text number seven. Whoever sheds human blood shall have his blood shed by man. Means we believe in capital punishment for the crime of murder. But the Torah doesn't say that the judicial court is considered murder. No. Because this person murdered, he is. Of course, by the way, it required a, an incredible amount of proofs and a lot of, um, you know, procedures. And there was a lot of, like, reasons. For example, to give you an example, which I'm learning just now in the Maimonides that I learn every day. It says that if there was a capital, um, you know, judicial thing going on, you needed two judges... Two, well, two witnesses is anything, not only uh, uh, capital punishment. But if there was a, a you know, there was, a, you know, the, the judicial court had a the, the dispute and there was only one person, one extra person that had, you know, a re basically it was like, let's say, 21 people said he is uh, liable for, for capital punishment. And 20 people said no, he wouldn't get capital punishment. You needed two people to give the to for it for the person to be liable of capital punishment. Which means the Torah did not uh, celebrate the capital punishment. You required many proofs, and and it says in the in the Talmud that a, a court that killed people every 70 years was considered uh, outrageous. Which means, this is all to show you that the Torah did not celebrate this type of behavior. Okay? Now, Torah allows killing in self-defense. And not only it, it, it uh, allows killing in self-defense, Torah obligates wars of self-defense. And, and this is another uh, phrase that we explain in text number 7. After stating that God will demand... The murder from the hand of each human being, 
the verse adds, from the hand of each man for that of his brother. Rabbi Berlin explains in text number 10, why does it say from the hand of his brother, for that of his brother? So the verse states, from the hand of each man for that of his brother, the verse states of his brother. Why do you have to add of his brother? With this, God qualified that man is punished for murder in times of camaraderie and peace. However, at times of war and conflict, killing is allowed and does not incur punishment. Which means, if there's a war, you have to kill. And you're not liable of murder. If it's a war, you have to kill. It's, in other words, it's, it's like self-defense. There's a war, you have to fight the war. So that's the only time you're allowed to kill is in self-defense and in war. Self-defense and if there's a war. That's, that's how Israel uh, operates, really. And, um, and all the, the cases in the Torah, so there's very different ways of looking at it. There is the people that God commanded us, you know, the seven nations and uh, Amalek, and first of all, the, the story of, of Jacob and his sons is different because that was not, there was no commander of God to do that. And they were punished for it. Not in the same, you know, they weren't killed for it because the, the people of Shechem, they had their, their uh, faults and they deserved death. But Deserved death. Yeah, it's it's a hard it's a hard. Uh, wow. Yeah, but because okay, maybe deserve that it's a hard it's a very harsh way to say it, but because if they deserve death, why would the Jacob's sons be be punished for it? They were punished for it because they acted on you know in Why their not own punished with loss of their own life. Right, which means, so in other words, they they weren't innocent. In other words. So therefore, they were punished, but not they were, the, the Jacob's sons were punished, but not with capital punishment. So it's it's a it's a kind of a an interesting sticky it's situation. Only catch twenty two here. Well, there's there's you have to really look into the commentaries and understand what, what really went on. You can't take things in in the literal sense. I you, guess not. And and that's one thing. So Jacob's sons. That was their initiation. When God says you have to kill these people, and the, you know the the flood, that's different. And when God says if a person does this sin, he gets cut off, that's also different because nowadays we don't get that punishment. You understand? So there's a lot there's a lot to talk about. Now, after all this, we said Torah allows killing for, you know, capital punishment, for self-defense, and in a war. Yet, there's something called the stain of violence. Let's look over here. Murder is always prohibited. Killing is sometimes justified. Wait, what, what do those initials mean? What is that R-T-S-C-H? I'm just looking at the, the words. Retzach, the Hebrew. Oh, okay. It's the Sorry. Hebrew. Retzach and Hereg. Got it. Got it. So, and then he says, when can killing be justified? A, if it's a judicial execution, or if it's self-defense, self-fellow, or a nation. That's the war. 
more part of it, right? If self-defense or self-defend yourself, or if you see someone attacking a person, you can defend, defend the person. Now, yet with all this, the justified killing, yet the Torah despises killing. How do we know that? So let's look at David. King David is probably the greatest king. And the reason he's regarded as the greatest king is because God chose him to be the, the dynasty of kings forever. In fact, the, the king Messiah, Moshiach, it comes from David. So, you know, king da you can't say that King David is not regarded as, as, as one of the best kings, if not the best. And yet, he began the, the building of the temple, he conquered Jerusalem, he did everything. He bought the land, everything was ready. God said, I'm sorry, but your son will build the temple. Why? Let's look at text number 11. Me? Yes. David said to Solomon, my son, my intention was to build a house for God, but the word of God came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have fought great wars. You shall not build a house for me because you have shed much blood on the earth before me. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and I will give him, the re give him respite from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon and I will grant him peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for me. So, David wasn't punished for his, you know, for his wars. He was obligated to do so. That was his job. Yet, despite that, he couldn't build a temple because the temple is the center of divine worship, had to be a place of peace and life. And David didn't represent that perfectly. So it's incredible. You might think King David, he did everything that he was supposed to. And yet, the Torah, and the Torah doesn't just, you know, it's in the texts, in the prophets. The Torah says, I'm sorry, you cannot build a temple. Why? Because even necessary violence is not glorified. The hands stained by blood could not build God's temple. Now, an even more incredible... Uh, hi, good evening. An even more incredible... Um, subtle thing in the Torah is that the Mishnah regarding ornamental weapons. So it says in the, in the, in the laws of Shabbat, so you know on Shabbat you cannot carry outside of private domain. Now, does that mean you can't wear clothing? Of course not. You can wear clothing and also things non-essential worn accessories, decorative, for example, jewelry. You could wear it because it's, you know, to make you look nice. Now the question comes in the Mishnah, what do you do? What do you do about weapons? Right? Is weapons something to look nice? Or is weapons something that doesn't look nice? And meaning, if weapons are regarded as something, you know, that glorifies you, makes you look good, then you should be able to wear them on Shabbat because just like jewelry, you know, weapons also the same thing. We have people here that come to shul here with weapons. Well, that's again self-defense. That's different. Yeah. Oh, it's a catch. But it's not catch-22. This is 
These are we, the. We have a, an armed person at the door, but then we have so x number of people in the congregation that also have weapons because the guy at the door is not enough for the weapon. Yeah, that, that's exactly why. It's all for security. It's not because. First of all, it's for security. So therefore, you can carry that that, that gun outside a private domain because it's for security. It's more than a catch twenty two. You have to you have to understand there is. There is standards. There is, there is, uh, there is a structure. Understand? So, the Mishnah now is talking about, okay, our ornaments, something that There's we always been anti-Semitism before. There's always been threats to shuls before. And but now it's okay to carry guns to shul. We always did. We always did. Yeah. The question, of course. You know, all soldiers in Israel carry weapons. I'm not it's talking in Israel, in other places. Yeah, because we don't do it other than security. That's, that's why we do it. Because, because the Torah, as much as the Torah says, this is a place to worship and God protects you, you have to protect yourself. That's what the Torah believes so in, in. It's not, you know, it's not a, a missed, you know, a, a, a lack of, 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 of faith. No, you have to protect yourself. The Torah believes in that. But the question is about carrying, you know, ornamental, uh, not for security. What if just wearing, you know, in, in those days, so what is the underlying bottom line of, what am I trying to go to get to? How does Torah view weapons? How does Torah view war? As a necessity. Only as a necessity, but not as a celebratory, a glorifying thing. Romans and, and Greeks and ancient times, they said, ornaments, oh, that's beautiful, warrior, glorified. So therefore, according to the Romans, it's beautiful. You should carry it on Shabbos because it's like jewelry for the man. Ladies have jewelry, men wear their, their swords. But the Mishnah comes and says, no. Unless it's a necessity, you, sh you, can't, you shouldn't, you can't carry the things because Torah views violence only as a necessity, if it's a necessity. Not, does not, the Torah does not glorify that. So let's look at text number 12, Donovan. A man may not go out on the Shabbat with a sword, bow, shield, club, or spear. These weapons are a disgrace for the person, as the verse states, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning of Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. The bottom line is the ultimate vision of the Torah is of a world of peace. And therefore, we never turn these weapons into a glorified accessory. That's the bottom line that the Mishnah is trying to teach us. We, in other words, you know, very different than, than, for example, the terrorists, they're exactly the opposite. They glorify the war, they glorify death, and, and we glorify, we, we say, what does Israel always say? We don't want to fight. We, we wished we didn't have to fight and kill people. But this is self-defense. And... And uh, like the Talmud says, 
that we you know how much we hoped for for uh, for peace in the cities in text number 13 the cities of Adam shall be like a chief in Judah and Akron shall be like Yevusi Kibusi what is this this refers to the amphitheaters and circuses of Rome where the princes of Judah are destined to teach Torah publicly which means turn those places where they used to you know there was a time in the, in the king uh, some king emperor Tiran something he had a party of 127 days where 11,000 11, animals were killed and 10,000 gladiators. So the, the, the Talmud is saying, we wish when those places that they glorified war and torture and, and death to turn that into Torah and you know, places where people can learn and, and become, make the world a better place. So, of course, Roman circuses are now history. And the question is, how did this Jewish gift change the world? Of course, as we said before, it is because Christianity adopted this value of human life. And Constant Constantine, who he was the first one that really, um, you know, he, he brought Christianity to, uh, to Rome. And he made it into the main religion. He abolished the gladiator games. And slowly, of course, we're not saying that, you know, all the Abrahamic faiths have had a very peaceful record. But it means definitely um, within society, we now accept that people, you know, shouldn't be killed because of... Uh, <laughs> It's convenient or it's entertaining to others. And life ultimately became sacred. So now all this was to show you what not to do. Because we have a divine image. Now what is the positive connotation with living with a divine image? Okay, so how does the value become adopted by other monotheistic religions? Living with a divine image teaches us how to live. It, it reminds us and it gives us an awareness of our potential. We have a divine image means we have a godly power inside of us. And the, the very practical application is how do we, do we deal with complications? Paganism be, be believed Everything is fate, or we don't have to go far as paganism. But nowadays, you know, the belief in everything is chance. And, you know, so they, they say everything is chance, therefore, you know, suck it up and, uh, and try to enjoy life. But you can't really do much. But once you, you have the knowledge that we have divine image, A, we can shape fate, and when we can't, we can shape, as we said last week, we can shape our perspective. And here I, I want to show you an incredible video um, of, okay, so paganism, faith is binding, Torah, we have the ability to shape faith, and we have the intelligence to change circumstances, that's by preventing disease and everything, and when we can't change the circumstances, we have free choice to change our perspective. Now let's look at, um, sorry, 
First, we're going to talk about Yosef. Joseph. So, an incredible, the incredible story of Joseph. Um, okay, so let, uh, let me read text 14, which is a letter by the Rabbi. Um, it is clearly apparent that the effect of life's events have, have on... Sorry, I think there was another... Now, it's 14... Okay, yeah, yeah. It is clearly apparent that the effect that life's events have on us depend, to a large degree, on our perspective toward them and our reaction to them. There is no better example for this than Maimonides. Maimonides' life circumstances were filled with extraordinarily distressing events. Troubles, tumults, suffering, and tragedies. May God protect us. Yet, nevertheless, Maimonides' outlook on life, as expressed in his book, Guide for the Perplexed, was extremely positive and optimistic. On the other hand, we see many people whose life circumstances seem successful, yet only very rarely do they show any measure of satisfaction. When circumstances are beyond our control, it becomes especially vital to tap into Hasidic teachings, which enable the human mind to find some measure of positivity in the undesired circumstance. My intention with the above is not to reproach you, God forbid. In fact, it is difficult to write such things to you, knowing what you have endured. I'm only trying to guide you to some Torah concepts that can lessen your heart burden and assuage your spirit, at least in some measure. This is until the fulfillment of the promise that the good God will give you good and will show you his favor in all that you need. So the perfect biblical example was Joseph. Um, so let's read 15a and 15b. Dr. Tom. When Joseph was in prison, God was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. The warden put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners and he, made, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because God was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Okay, so very briefly, Joseph is one of the 12 bro 11 brothers, 12 brothers. He's sold into slavery, and yet when he's in prison, he somehow he becomes in charge of all the prisons. And one night, he he was in prison with uh, two, you know, prominent figures or whatever, two people in the court of Pharaoh. One was the cupbearer and one was the baker. They they had some uh, they messed up, and Pharaoh sent them into the dungeon, and. Joseph saw that they, they, they looked distressed. So text 15b. Joseph came to them in the morning and saw that they were dejected. Joseph asked Pharaoh's officials who were imprisoned with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Joseph said to them, don't interpretations belong to God? So think about it. Here is Joseph. He was sold from, you know, he was, he was sold. Um, he was sold into slavery from his brothers. He's, he's thrown into prison. And no, he sold. Yeah, he went, he goes to prison. 
No. He's, he becomes part of the, uh, one of the officials, his servants, and then he's uh, accused of, of rape, and then he, he goes into prison. And imagine, he, he had all the reasons to be depressed and just be miserable. Yet, he has the ability to, under, you know, to see that these people are distressed. And he asks them, you know, what, what's, what's going on? And, and this led him to interpret their dreams. And because of that, he interprets the dreams of Pharaoh. And then he becomes viceroy and he, can, you know, he feeds, feeds the entire nation, including his family. So he didn't let the circumstance overpower him. Even though he didn't, couldn't do much, but his perspective is what changed him. So, thrown into jail, became prison administrator. And then he interpreted dreams and became viceroy over Egypt. So the divine image, knowing that you have a divine image, it gives you the ability to shape fate. Or when you can't, at least shape your perspective. Now, the modern view for this, and this we're going to end with this, is that life, unfortunately, even though we respect life, but what gives life its value is not anymore that in, inherent value from God, the divine image, but it's because it's a, it's a right. It's a human right. Now, there's nothing terrible with that. The problem is, is that It's no longer about the sanctity of life. It's about personal autonomy. And what is the problem with that? For example, a physician-assisted suicide. Or euthanasia. What is the problem? The problem, the Torah forbids euthanasia because ultimately, the yes, we understand, you know, the Torah, you know, Understand that you're that people that go through euthanasia they don't do it because suicide is a whole different uh, a whole different topic, and definitely definitely you know we have to prevent in any way. But um, euthanasia is usually done by people that are suffering, and the Torah says that it's very 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 it's very painful, but yet. The Torah does not believe in, in, in physician-assisted suicide because the divine image still has what to give, even though the person is suffering. It hurts. It hurts for the person. It hurts for the family. But the Torah says, because human life is not only your right that you can decide you know, yes or no, it's about the divine image. And therefore, it's a very, it is a very hard one to swallow. And yet, you know, there's a, we can read the text number 17. 16, or 17. Seven, uh, 16 sorry. Yeah. You, can go. No. you know, good. it's about murder, but at the end it's about euthanasia. Right. Well, he's talking about the idea, you know, that you know, giving death by, by your choice, so to speak. Okay, so let's read it. Yeah, two forms of murder. You don't want it? Okay. 
One is murder intended for the detriment of the victim as an act of revenge or in order to take the victim's money or the like. The second form of murder is for the benefit of the other. When someone is overwhelmed with great pain and prefers death to life. The Torah addresses both of these regarding murder for the detriment of the victim. The verse says, from the hand of each human being. The second form of murder which is committed was with the consent of the suffering individual and for his or her benefit may even be done by a vitru- uh, virtuous friend who might, may believe that it is in fact a mitzvah. The verse therefore says, from the hand of each man for that of his brother. So what the Torah is telling the, the, the ill person is your life is still inherently valuable and godly. As long you know, as you're here, there is a godly mission for us to achieve in every situation. This is a very, you know, very painful topic. And, uh, but this is where the, the Torah's, this is the Torah's, uh, what does it mean the Torah? This is God's view on it. And it's because... It's pretty cruel. It's devastating. You, I, I have to interrupt if you've, seen, if you've seen people in this mode and you want to I'm tell not, them I'm not the family that this is what they should do. I'm not. Okay, so that, that's cruel. very different. That's very different. It's cruel. This is very different. There is, there is, you know, what it is, and then there is, you know, talking to the family. You're explaining. What do you say to the family? Okay. The you say. says, I want to die. You say, <laughs> listen, God. God has his, his uh, we don't understand God. And you and your family will suffer for it. No, we, That's the we net, hope. net of it. Okay, well, we, we don't understand God. And, you know, I hope that you and you, you I, I can pray that you end your suffering as soon as possible. But the, the, the point is, God has, you know, he does a lot of things that we don't understand. Some Does that mean you're very cruel? Okay. Does that the it problem goes back is to he loves everyone individually, not so the much prob- some of them. But the problem is, okay. So the, the problem is that you, instead of saying I don't understand God, you say okay, I understand that God is cruel. So that's a, a big topic. Okay, because God is is not a human being that you can say oh he does this, he does this, he does this. that means he's cruel. No, I, I go back to I don't think he cares about every individual. He but has a big plan. But you see the divine I, I image. Don't, the I divine by the he cares about every individual. So the divine Some image suffer a lot. So the divine image, but you you, that's the point. You can't understand how God's love. You can't. No, I. I Sometimes don't. you understand. In other words, it's a remember the the candy thing. Sometimes you see it as a candy. Sometimes you don't see it. But my point is. Um, I lost my train of thought. I've been in this situation and it didn't come to pass, but I was 100% ready to help someone kill themselves. 100% ready, and I, okay. and I believe that I was doing the best thing I could do for them. Okay. Yeah, my dad's a prime example. He was dying literally of stomach cancer. We were all around him watching, and he's, um, he was alert enough to say, I want suicidal help. And right. like suicide, what was assistant suicide or whatever. Yeah. And they had, he, he, he signed the papers. We couldn't even stop him. He wanted to do it. And um, we're like, oh my God, it's against the Torah. Blah, 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 blah. But meanwhile, he's there and he's like on fire. 
his body's on fire because the cancer was eating him up. And he, we have to give him like ice cold water ongoingly. I said, I don't understand why it needs to be that cold. He goes, do you know what I feel like in here? It's fire. I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. I didn't know what he was going through. And then we hear him moaning through the ceiling at night, like even though he had nurses around the clock. It was devastating. And then, and then one, I must tell you, we ended, there was the Orthodox rabbi and then there was the Reform. And the Reform had a whole different outlook. They're like, why, why let the man suffer? God's, God's okay, but that's, okay, that's... Totally two different things. It was so it, but that's easy. That's easy because reform, they do whatever they want. It's it's very yeah, easy. I know, but they have. It wouldn't. I, I would say that it's it. not just reform. Anyone else would say the opposite because it's easy to say, "Oh, I got." It's easy to do what what feels what's easier. <laughs> but I still couldn't see the point till today. The point. I don't you, get it. Anna, you're not going to get it until Moshiach comes. We're not. We we have to understand we are finite human beings. We can. I'm not now. I'm not saying. For one of the main things, for example, some Orthodox people are going to, you know, get your, you did the wrong thing, and he's going to here, and he's going to there. That's definitely not what Chabad believes. Everyone has, has free choice. And I totally, you know, I, I, I can't imagine, you know, going through that. But the Torah is unchangeable. We don't understand God. We don't. We don't. It's not comforting. It definitely, it's not. And it doesn't encourage, it, it doesn't encourage me to, to want to understand it more when there's an absolute, this is the way it is, you can like it or not. Well, so what we're saying no, is... I'll understand it later. Okay. Okay, so, I have first of will, all... I have a choice. If I'm in that situation, I'm 100% sure what I will do. Okay, no problem. You, I, 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 I have and no problem with that. I'll take the consequences, that. whatever they are. Okay. No, okay. So my point is, my point is, my point is, everybody is presented with different challenges. Mm -hmm. And what my, my point is, maybe instead of focusing on all the things that you don't like about God, so to speak, you know, oh, he's cruel in this and that. My point is, why don't you look at the, the positive of the divine image? That is, A, you say, you keep saying, Oh, I don't believe God cares. The divine image is telling you every human being is God's, God's presence in this world. God is investing His divine image. So how can you say that He doesn't care? Because He causes much suffering. He allows or tolerates or... Okay, so you however, say, instead of saying... Okay, so instead of saying, coming to the conclusion saying, okay, I'll say, I'm just going to say God doesn't care. Or... No, I told you, I, think, I believe in the big plan. He's got a big plan. I believe in that. But, that, but, but some of us are just collateral damage in the big plan. But that's exactly how the Romans saw it. I, I, that's, that's an exaggeration. Not I they, hear you. I don't agree with that. So they said, they said, you know, you're saying collateral didn't damage? I believe there was a, there was a divine plan okay. in sense at all. What I'm saying is the, the, the result... The, the result of their lack of, of belief in, in human life, it was in a sense, in, in a very refined way. What you're saying is, I don't, I don't th some people are collateral damage. No. God says every human being is priceless. And every human being has a divine image. And therefore, I mean, instead of looking at it, what I'm trying to tell you is, don't focus on the negative. Try to focus on the positive. That means, think about every human being that you meet. Think about your life. That every little detail that you have, God is, is investing in you. Your divine image. So, I understand it's very hard. And, and 
We all have, have you know, our, our uh, issues with God. And that's okay. You know, God, God understands that. So, yes. This is really hard to believe, and I hope you guys don't think I'm off the charts to ask this, but my son brought home a little puppy, and he brought three altogether, and every time I said no to this, no to that, the third one he brought, I looked in this dog's eyes, and I, I'm going to tell you the truth. Honestly, I saw a soul speak to me through these eyes. Then I find out this puppy was born exactly the same day that my dad passed away. I freaked out when I heard that. I thought, oh my God, like there's something about this dog. Cause my, my son didn't give up. He wanted a puppy. So we figured, okay, she said no to that one cause it's gonna grow. She didn't like that one because it was black with a black eye. This one, this one is white and gold. White and gold. I've never seen ears that were gold and a little gold on its, somewhere on its back. Fluffy white, like the tiniest, most precious looking thing I've ever seen. I looked at it and I like, I just melted. And I, and I looked at its eyes. Cause you know how they say the soul is through the eyes. And then I find out, you know, that obviously he's, he was born, like, born the same day as my dad passed away. I thought, boy, there's something about this dog. Everything someone, is divine providence. Well, I'm telling you, what I want to ask you is, yeah. you have to believe when I test things. Because I'm very, usually, 99% accurate when I test things with my pendulum. I found out that, from what I was testing, 50% of that soul is my dad's soul in there. And then I thought, that's impossible, I can't imagine. So I texted Nakama and the rabbi, and Nakama said, it's rare, but it's possible. It's not that the, the soul should be in there. It's like, it's like it's gotta come out. Then I texted this other friend who lives in Australia. She's like a renowned spiritual healer for all over the world. She said, I tested exactly what you tested. Yes, the soul is in there. I just was spooked. I thought, okay, well, what am I supposed to do? Do I take the soul out? Do I leave it in there? When I uh, test the Do you dog? know how to take the soul out? Yeah. She said you do, to, well, my Jewish friend said you do to heal until it helps itself out. The other one who wasn't Jewish said you have to pray it out, so she had her own way of praying. Okay. I mean, look, it's like spirit, like it's like negative entities. You tell them to leave because no one, no negative entity wants to be where it's not welcome. So that okay. I know. But my question is, why is it there? Like, did my dad want to be in my house? My husband guessed that maybe because he knows that I can remove things, he just ended up in a trap and knows that I could get him out. And out of all the family members, I'm the only one that can do it. So I don't know. I don't know if I should be taking out. Like I want to why, keep the dog why? because my dog's soul's in it, and I thought, wow. Why can you? Why can you take out the soul and and keep the dog? Because I, I could, but I mean, the specialty is that if my dad's happy in there, let him be. I am not complaining. I'm just wondering why is he there and is he happy there? And I I, I don't. The dog, it's a I, I'm not a. Well, first of all, let's start from the beginning. Is this possible in your view? Of it is possible that is. a soul or a part of a soul can come down into animals it is possible wow that's what i wanted to hear from a rabbi it is it's called it's called gilgulim you know the i just want to play this video because it's yeah, it's the end it's answer. very I have a lot of people waiting for your answer to tell you this it's a very answer. powerful video Within two years, 
I watched that all slip away. My muscles that played guitar, gave to my congregation and danced at weddings lost their functionality. They call it ALS. Over the past few weeks, I couldn't get my eyes to focus on the letters I wanted to write. Writing one word took as long as five minutes. I can't even begin to tell you how frustrating it was. I felt useless as a husband and father. Not being able to write Torah articles, I felt irrelevant. I was in jail. What possible purpose could I have, if I couldn't communicate? Brave and wise, Dina said, on Shabbat, when you don't use the eye gaze computer, you are still significant and relevant. Even if you can only see and look at people, that is meaningful to us. If you are alive, it means that you are relevant to Hashem, and that you make a difference. For me, Amunah is the realization that God is real, that He has a plan for the world, and I am part of it. Everyone is a part of it, and everyone's part is important. So if He put me in this position, He must want something of me that I can only do in this position. When you see it this way, instead of feeling down when you are in a challenging situation, you are filled with a sense of purpose. It is now over five years since Hashem gifted me with ALS. While life is full of difficulties, pain, and suffering, there is so much to be grateful for. While I understand the hardships, I choose to focus on the positive parts of my life, and that keeps me going. There is my wife, my children, family, friends, and you. Even within the suffering and difficulties, I can still contribute and help others. Through my blog, I have the opportunity to learn and teach Torah. I forged new friendships with the teens and yeshiva boys that visit. Being crushed has brought stronger connections, new abilities, higher purpose and deeper meaning. I've been blessed with a voice that can't sing, with a body that doesn't work, so I dance to a new rhythm. I'm Yitzi Hurwitz, and I know that I matter. Wow. So actually, this Thursday is his birthday. So if you, 48. So if you, if you, uh, he has this campaign called Tefillin for Yitzi. If you want to put on Tefillin in his honor.